0: Hello, beautiful souls. We're so happy that you could join us on the Learn to Love podcast. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm so excited to introduce our guest for this upcoming episode, which has not one, not two, but three incredible guests, Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and Emily Sotelo Matlock. Together, these three incredible individuals created the multi Emery podcast in 2014 in order to raise awareness, provide approachable resources, and combat the stigma faced by people in non-traditional relationships. Today, with hundreds of episodes, millions of downloads around the world, and a rapidly growing community, they are dedicated to offering practical advice and communication tools grounded in the latest relationship research, guest experts, and years of professional experience. multi has been featured in numerous publications, including NPR, Vice, Huffington Post, Oprah Daily, and Cosmopolitan. In addition to their national tours, they have presented at the Google campus in Seattle and have been keynote speakers and presenters at numerous conferences. They came onto the show to talk about their latest book, Multiamory, Essential Tools for Modern Relationships. So without further ado, let's begin.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast. Your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love
2: yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show.
0: Hello, beautiful souls. We are so blessed to have you join us on the Learn to Love podcast. And I'm here not just with one, not two, but three incredible guests. Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and Emily Sotello. Hello, everybody. Thanks so much for coming on. Hi there. Hi, thank you for having us. We have four incredible people here in this room together and it's such a wonderful opportunity because our topic is multi which is also the name of your incredible podcast. So thank you so much for taking time out of your busy days to come on all three of you. How is everyone doing today?
3: Oh, well, we've been scrambling a little bit before this interview because of some internet outages and drama and stuff like that. So let's just take a moment to acknowledge the miracle that all three of us are here now and we've made it work.
0: yes exactly <laughs> yes it's so wonderful to have the three of you here and i gotta start with the first question which i'm sure is the question you get asked all the time really multi-amory another funny sounding word i have to figure out what it means uh where did, <laughs> where did this come about what's wrong with all the other terms that we have nowadays
3: uh, multi-amory actually came from an internet meme into like that started probably in like 2010. Is that accurate, Jace? Do you remember?
1: It's been around, feels like forever. But the the joke goes that basically a couple students are talking about polyamory and the professor overhears them and says, What? Polyamory is wrong. And they the Kids get all offended and like, what are you talking about? It's a totally valid way to do relationships. And the professor says, Yeah, 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 that's fine. But but combining Latin and Greek roots is wrong. It should be polyphilia or multi-amory, not polyamory. And that's that was the whole joke. So when we were starting our show about polyamory, we thought multi-amory sounded cool. And so we did that. But to answer your question more thoroughly, didn't choose polyphilia. We well, didn't No, there's else? somebody else who did. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Somebody
3: else came along later and took polyphilia.
1: But we, oh, thought, we thought multi multiamory sounded nicer between the two options. And, uh, but the important thing to mention is that multi-amory is just the name of our show. It is not a style of relationship. It's not a new term people need to learn. It does sometimes make people panic. Like if they're interviewing us, they go, oh gosh, multi-amory, am I, have I been saying the wrong thing all along? But no, that's just the name of our show. So we, we are multi-amory. We use the word multi-amory now to refer to multiple forms of love rather than polyamory, which is specifically about having multiple committed relationships. So for us, multi-amory means we cover it all from conscious monogamy to relationship anarchy or polyamory, swinging everything in between as long as it's conscious and intentional.
0: So multi-mini-amory love. And what's some of your favorite (laughs) Emery's favorite (laughs) to to explore to talk about on your show.
2: Oh, gosh, I, I think I, Amory of many kinds, including, (laughs) (laughs) including love that you have with people in not a romantic capacity, but with other people as well. Like the fact that I do a podcast with two of my exes who I love in a very different way than maybe I once did. And yet I don't think it diminishes the love that I have for them. It's just a different form of love than maybe it once was. I think that's a great thing about Sort of what non-monogamy can teach you is that relationships can transition over time. They can take many different forms, and that's totally okay. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's failed, which so many people, I think, believe when a relationship takes a different form than it once did. Like you know a romantic relationship ends but people can still stay committed to each other in raising a child together for instance or you may have a lifelong friend that you choose to live with and that therefore you know becomes one of the great loves of your life it may not be romantic but it still is super important in your life so i think that's one of the many things that we try to do on our show is I uh, it show that any type of relationship that you're in it can matter a lot it doesn't just have to look one way.
0: Sounds like you need an episode on like agua amory or like fluid love and all the way that oh, it Interesting. <laughs> that <it changes>. Interesting.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll have to we'll have to get a linguist on to help us with brainstorming. <laughs> some more Amory's to discuss.
0: So it's so interesting Emily said two of your exes so this is my first little foray into kind of who you guys are. And I wanted to start with you, Emily, because in your book, you say you are currently in a happily monogamous relationship. And this was after a few years of exploring this world of non-monogamy and polyamory. And now I'm hearing, including the two other guests here were part of this uh, exploration. So (laughs) how did that transition happen? Do you feel like you've you know, switch teams and
2: you're on the <laughs> I don't know if I've She's switched been traded teams away. Necessarily. <laughs> yeah, sure. It, yeah, again, I mean I really personally try to kind of distance myself from this like us versus them mentality, at least for myself. Although I can understand that this is still sort of the world that we live in and we do tend to see things as like, okay, there's those polyamory non-monogamous weirdos over there and then everybody else. (laughs) But that's kind of not necessarily how I roll. I think um, when you've been non-monogamous and when it worked well for you, I think that being monogamous and being consciously monogamous and really questioning and asking yourself, what does that mean for you? What is that going to look like? What parts of the relationship am I interested in and what parts am I not? For instance, how you know autonomous am I going to be? How individual am I going to be? How much enmeshed with another person, am I going to be or not? So, yeah, I mean, Jay Stedicker and I were once in a triad together. Jason and I were also once monogamous together, and then we met Dedeker and, you know, (laughs) through a series of events and deciding we want to become non-monogamous, that occurred, and we were that for for a while, and then I ended up being monogamous because I met somebody and I wanted to explore that as well. And yet, Jason and Dedeker are still in a non-monogamous relationship and have been for 10 years. You guys (laughs) celebrated your 10-year anniversary yesterday. Congratulations. (laughs)
0: Thank you. So 10-year anniversary, uh, that goes against what many people think, that opening up one's relationship means it's doomed. Yeah. (laughs) Or that that, it doesn't work. Or that it is
3: you're attempting to, to save a failing relationship in some way. Which, to be fair, none of those things are necessarily wrong in the sense that, yeah, a lot of opened relationships go completely off the rails. A lot of people turn to non-monogamy as an attempt to save a relationship when that's really not the most appropriate tactic that they should be taking. But I mean, it is nice to have the milestone, especially considering that Jace and I have never had a monogamous relationship ever. Like, from day one, it's never been monogamous. With each
1: other, she means. With each other, yeah. Yeah, I mean,
3: that's what I mean. With each other. Our relationship between the two of us.
0: Like, when you were 13. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Had plenty of monogamous relationship in the past, both of us. But between the two of us, it's never been monogamous and I mean, for me, it's been one of the like healthiest and longest lasting relationships of my entire life. And so, you know, it's interesting because way back in 2014, when we first started the podcast, we initially thought we're going to create this special polyamory podcast that's going to give special polyamory advice for special polyamorous people. And that's what it's all going to be about the entire time. And maybe after a couple of years of doing that, starting to realize like, yeah, there are certain things that are very unique to polyamorous people. There's very unique terminology. There's some unique situations. However, at the end of the day, as far as what's going to make a successful non-monogamous relationship, a lot of it is the same stuff that's going to make a successful monogamous relationship. You know, And so we did start to shift our focus a little bit to be much more inclusive instead of just focusing on this very, very Tiny sliver of a particular type of relationships. And yeah, you know, over the past nine years of the show, we've all three of us learned so much, you know, mm-hmm. not just from, you know, spending every single week talking about relationships and thinking about relationships and diving into relationship research and talking to experts, but also learning from our little community of listeners that has sprung up around the show, getting to see what their pain points are or what their successes are or like the topics that they're interested in covering or the things that they're facing in their lives that's been this just an amazing education that like it's hard to even put words to it
0: yeah that's so interesting because when you said there are a lot of open relationships that go completely off the rails i wanted to kind of get into what makes them go completely off the rails but what i'm hearing from you now is that there are fundamental principles that almost underlie all relationships that really help no matter what relationship style that it is.
1: I think also it's worth noting that if a relationship is struggling because there's some kind of fundamental incompatibility or some kind of difference in beliefs that the people just can't get past, doing a different format of relationship isn't going to change that, right? So when people do look at their relationship and say, this isn't working. Let's try something else. And it's like, let's have a kid or (laughs) let's move abroad or let's open up our relationship. These are like the things that people try sometimes when they just want to find something else. And occasionally, occasionally that might help, but usually they don't. Usually they all make it worse. Because all those things, having a kid, traveling abroad, opening your relationship, rely on having a really solid foundation of good communication and being a team together. So if you have those things and you do those things, it's great. But if you're trying to do those to repair a relationship that doesn't have a solid foundation, it's that's going to go badly, not because you made that choice, but just because it was already going badly.
0: Yeah, I really like that you brought up this idea of good communication, because we are here to talk about your new book, you meeting all three of you, new book, Multi-Amory Essential Tools for Modern Relationships, the first chapter of which is literally on communication. So I would love to hear more from any of you about what you do find is the most helpful to create Positive connecting communication that does create a really solid foundation, as you mentioned, for a relationship.
3: Yeah. Wow. Where to even begin? I mean, we're we're at a place of you know having like four hundred plus episodes of our podcast uh, in pursuit of finding that right of like what are these underlying principles? What are the things that are accessible to the most people possible? So you know, in our book, especially in the intro chapter of our book, like we do spend a fair amount of time not just laying out what counts as good communication, but also laying out like, why is it that we should strive for good communication, but also kind of honestly expanding it into we need to examine what counts as like a good relationship also. You know, like we're so used to that adage that says that, you know, relationships are all about communication or all about good communication. But we need to, I think, go a little bit deeper with the question of like. Okay, but how do we know that like good communication is happening in a relationship? And how do we know that that's what the problem is in the relationship? Because I know something that I've seen with working with clients for so many years is, you know, sometimes people are striving for like, what's just the one trick, right? Or can we just sit down for (laughs) one session with a couples counselor? Or what's the one book? that we need to read in order to completely like you know revamp and like fix our relationship when there really does have to be i think this foundation underneath it where we can make adjustments to our communication in good faith and we can still respect each other and care for each other and love each other right i mean it's the kind of thing where i think that if a relationship is in gridlock me teaching you how to use I statements is not gonna be the one thing that's gonna undo that gridlock. Like so so like in our intro chapter of our book, like we did spend a fair amount of time almost getting into a little bit of like the philosophical meat of what counts as good communication and and relationship success as well.
0: Well it's interesting what I'm hearing from you is about respect, care and love, which is the words that you use, which I also feel like create a very solid foundation, but we can also ensure that our communication is respectful and caring and loving.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think ideally that are those are the things that you would look for, sort of the bare minimum of things that you would look for. And that's not always going to happen. I think in our most challenging moments, we may get really physiologically worked up and we may get really emotionally worked up and are, we may not be putting our best foot forward at all times, but In our book, we do try to lay out some ways in which to get back to those moments of calm so that we can come back to a conversation with a partner in a better place and, you know, coming towards them with that love and respect again and that understanding for one another. Because if you don't, then often things are said that you're not going to, that you don't really mean, or, you know, you're not saying them in the best way possible. And that can, because for further anger and upset and hurt down the line as well. So I think something that we really talk about throughout the book is the use of meta communication, which is getting very specific about the way in which you communicate. And that really is you know saying things like, this is actually what I mean when I'm saying this word to you or this thing to you. Or when I hear you say this thing to me, it's really challenging because of this thing that occurred to me in my past. And I want you to know that because it's important to me that you understand where I'm coming from and where I'm coming from is going to be different than where you're coming from because our pasts are most likely going to be very different from one another. This is reminding
3: me of a question that we often get in interviews, specifically about the book. People often ask us, well, who is this book for? Like, Do you need to be a non-monogamous person in order to get something out of this book? and we like to spend a lot of time reassuring people that that's not the case like it's not a non monogamy 101 manual you know you have to be comfortable with non monogamy existing in the universe as long as you're okay with its existence but which some a people lot of are not people
0: are
3: <laughs> yes mm-hmm. yeah like you know not everybody is but as long as you're okay with that then you yeah. can read this book but i think the other prerequisite for our book and to be honest i think for any communication tool is i think you need to have a sense of self efficacy and a certain amount of, I think, intellectual flexibility. And what I mean by that is having that sense of empowerment that like, okay, I know I may have received some particular patterns, some particular emotional patterns. I may have been taught some particular communication patterns. I realize they may be clashing with my partner's emotional patterns and communication patterns, but I know that we can shift that. I know it is possible to change that. I know it is possible for the two of us to collaborate and work together to find a particular communication pattern that works for us instead of feeling like, well, I'm just stuck this way, you're just stuck that way, and we need to find a way to white knuckle it, or I need to find a way to tell you that you need to shape up something like that, right? It's like, I don't think that we can change our communication and move it into a healthier and better direction, unless there is that belief. And I think that belief has to be shared by everyone that's in the relationship, a sense that like, okay, no, we can put our heads together and we can make an effort to
0: change this. I like that term. Intellectual flexibility. I feel like next time if you're in an argument, you want to say you're so stubborn or you can't see my point of view. You can just say, I'm (laughs) wanting a bit more intellectual flexibility.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure it will go over real well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like maybe get granular about what it is exactly that you mean by that. So it's not you're done just throwing the word intellectual around in the mean way. Yeah.
0: It's so interesting because before you were in the podcast, you warned me that you have this little put finger on the cheek to so that you know when somebody wants to talk next. And I was almost imagining you in conversation with each other, like listening, but finger on the cheek, like, oh, they want to say something as sort of a signal because, Jason Dedeker, you, you're in a relationship, you just had your 10 years. And are there you know, some of your favorite tools that you find yourself using most often in your relationship? Are there just even like cute things that you find are
1: really good for turning conflict into connection? Absolutely. I think one that's related to what you were just talking about is a tool that we talk about in our book called Microscripts. And essentially, The really short version is a whole section of our book, but the short version is that a microscript is some short phrase, maybe even a single word, or even a particular gesture or action that you agree on together in a relationship that this is going to mean something else. And the idea is this. Think about uh, one of the examples we give in the book is about doing chores, And so say you live together with a partner and the trash needs to get taken out. No one really likes taking out the trash. And so if your partner is washing the dishes and they say, Hey, honey, could you take the trash out? Most of us aren't like, oh yeah, love to. So excited. It's like, ugh, okay, yeah, sure. And that can feel shitty for the person who is asking for help, especially if it's because they're doing something else. And so one example is to say, okay, we've recognized there's this pattern that I ask you to take out the trash, or do something around the house, you sigh and say, okay. And then I feel hurt, because I was asking for help. And now you seem like you don't want to give it to me. And the other person can explain, oh, yeah, it's not that it's just sure, I don't like taking out the trash. No one does. But I'm happy to do it for you and for our household. So let's come up with a microscript. So now if you ask me to do that, instead, I'll respond with ready. Like, maybe put your hands on your hips like a superhero pose or something. Something, <laughs> if it's a little silly, it, it helps, actually. I thought you were going to say, like, yeah, banana or something. Mm-hmm. like It, be. Be <laughs> it could, could be banana. It could be. If, if it can be related to some kind of inside joke or inside reference in your relationship, even better. And the idea is that in that situation, the person can just say, ready. And what it's communicating is... No one wants to do this task, but I'm happy to do it for you. And I want you to know that I'm not upset with you for asking that of me. And I'm happy to contribute to our house, even though obviously I don't want to do this because no one does. And you were able to say all of that in one word and one little action. So for us, you know, pointing to ourselves is another thing where we realized, hey, there's a pattern of when we're all on a podcast together that sometimes we'll talk over each other or we'll have a hard time. Interrupting each other accidentally because there's a little bit of lag on video calls online, for example. And so we came up with this easy little gesture that helps us keep track of that. And sometimes we'll, you know, make silly versions of it, you know, pointing really hard to ourselves (laughs) if we're like, oh my God, I have something really good and stuff like that. But the whole point is that you notice a pattern and you say, hey, we're gonna come up with a tiny little thing that's really easy to do to kind of short circuit and interrupt that pattern from going the usual way it goes and instead to let us steer it in the direction we want it to go together that we've then we've pre-agreed on that so is ready one of yours or is that just an example
3: that one was actually from my sister and her husband
0: oh cute. Like, <laughs> yeah
3: um because like these default patterns we call them nothing fights You know, this (laughs) like, yeah, so it's so it's like, you know, just like these little annoyances, these little annoyed interactions that pop up where you crab at each other. And it's not productive. It's not helpful. It's literally you're just kind of whipping yourselves up into a frenzy and like poking at each other. Right. And so the microscript was meant to be the antidote to those nothing fights right? Of like, where can we identify these places where we have the same argument every single time or the same little annoyed interaction and it doesn't really get us anywhere? And like, how can we just like create, um, create a shortcut for ourselves? You know, and again, ideally, you know, the whole point behind microscripts is that it's harnessing the power of like what the researchers call idiosyncratic language, which is essentially in jokes. It's this idea that, you know, with your partner or... In your family of origin, where you grew up, like everyone in their little microcultures develops these little dialects, you know, the weird thing that you call the remote control that, you know, is based on what your little brother called it when he was three, right? And so we just kind of keep calling it that. And it's kind of the same thing, but used for a purpose of, you know, not just making each other laugh, but kind of helping to smooth out these particular rough edges, you know, these little areas where nothing fights are likely to crop up.
0: I feel like my vocabulary is just increasing by the minute that I'm listening (laughs) to We need to harness the power of idiosyncratic language by using microscripts as an antidote to nothing fights. And and having some intellectual flexibility around it all. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Before we go into more tools, I want to go a little bit back into kind of just this basic idea of non-monogamy and open relationships. Because, you know, at one point, Emily was like, if you're open to the idea of them existing... And a lot of people, almost when they hear about it, want to kind of stick their fingers in their ears and and start singing a a tune because they almost see it the existence as like a threat to like whatever relationship that they're in. And I remember watching your Google talk, which said that 6% of people are currently practicing some kind of non-monogamous relationship. And obviously 6% of the population is is a, a fairly large number. But to me, 6% also seems very small. Like I remember reading like 15% of people are in long distance relationships. And I was like, so at least twice as many people are willing to stay connected to their partner in a different town, state, or country and not be physically intimate with anybody than during that time, like be open to other people, which I thought was interesting. So yeah, your thoughts on, you know, why I say it's not more popular, more accepted, if these fears are founded in any way?
3: It probably is more than that, honestly. Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah. Um, 6% <laughs> is a pretty conservative estimate based on a very particular uh, survey from 2017. The most up-to-date numbers that we have suggest that probably one in five people have had some kind of consensually non-monogamous experience in their lifetime. And that's a pretty broad range. That's everything from... You know, I live in the same house with my polycule all the way to, yeah, my girlfriend and I had a threesome once, you know, that we really enjoyed. Like, so, you know, one in five, That's a little bit more of a chunkier number of the fact that everyone's had more people have had a touch point to consensual non-monogamy as well. And right now, you know, it's probably estimated 6% probably at the low end all the way up to what I think, what's, do you guys remember what the latest was like up to like 10% on the high end or something like that?
2: That seems reasonable. (laughs) Yeah. But I think uh, I'm constantly surprised at the amount of people that I hear talking about things like, I'm interested in having a threesome at some point in my life and still calling themselves like monogamous. Because to me, that is sort of still moving into the realm of monogamish, or I'm interested in some sort of open. If you look at like the word monogamous, that literally means like, I'm never going to sleep with anyone except for one person for the entirety of my life. And most of us just simply don't do that. And many of us even get into relationships where we, at some point or another, do open it up in some capacity. And... All four of us, I'm assuming, are of the millennial into gen Xer <laughs> variety. And yet <laughs> I I think so many kids that are younger than we are are really much more open to the idea of non-monogamy and are very aware of it in a way that I wasn't, for instance, when I was growing up, because of things like TikTok, because of things like social media in general, and just the fact that in the nine years that we've been doing this podcast we were one of two that were talking about non-monogamy. And now there are dozens, dozens and dozens. So yes, I, I agree with you. I mean- you know, I'm kind of in my little, <laughs> my little bubble of a lot of people who know about non monogamy and also practice it. And so to hear you be like, Oh, so many people out there don't want to be a part of this to me. I'm like, really? I, I know these people, <laughs> but I understand that that is the case. But really, if you think about it, it is so much more prevalent than it once was. And That to me is really exciting just because the possibility of something other than again, what we were all taught growing up is the only way to do relationships. Getting into the realm of there being possibility at all is very exciting to me.
1: One thing that I'd like to toss out here, and this could be a little bit of a challenging thought for people. So heads up on that. And this is a a term that I first heard From Dr. Elizabeth Sheff, who studies a lot of non-monogamous families. And she used the term the fear of the non-monogamous possibility or the fear of the polyamorous possibility to explain some of that reaction of not only do I say, Oh, I don't want to do that, I also say, no one should do this, and I don't want to hear about it, and I don't think people should talk about it. That the idea is that if there's something that you've been taught your whole life, you have to do. This is just how people do it. So in this example, monogamy, just monogamy is what you have to do. And in your life, you've struggled with that. It's been difficult at times. I think for most of us, we have found monogamy to be difficult at various points. If someone then comes along and says, hey, you don't have to do that thing. It can bring up a lot of feeling of, of threat of like, what are you telling me I've been doing all this work for nothing? Or are you trying to tell me that I shouldn't be doing it this way if there is a different way? Because we're so used to this thought that there is no choice. This is just how you do it. And there's no other option besides whatever, besides being slutty or besides just cheating or something, something that, that labels you as bad by society's standards. So I think that it can come up there. And the same thing we see it with uh, people really advocating for questioning whether or not you should have kids, that people who do have kids can sometimes be very upset by that whole notion of someone choosing not to have children. And I think there's a little bit of a similar thing there of having kids is a beautiful, awesome thing, but it's also super freaking hard. And (laughs) there's a little bit of that feeling of like, what? What? Like, no, you can't say that you, you can't do this because I had to do this. I felt like this is how I was raised, this is what I should value. And so it kind of it can feel like by someone presenting another option, it can maybe invalidate some of your effort that you've put into this, or just make you question a lot of central beliefs in how you've set up your whole life. And so that's something we really do set out on our show to dispel that idea that because someone's non-monogamous, they think monogamy is bad. And I think having the fact that Emily's been in a monogamous relationship now on our show helps to drive that home of like, hey, no, we don't think this is bad. totally valid way to do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
2: And I, I did have that moment where I was like, wait a minute, can I be on this show anymore now that I'm monogamous? I don't know if that's a thing that I can do. But, you know, it, instead, it sort of moved us in this direction of let's try to figure out how to be more inclusive and more understanding towards people in every type of relationship, not just this one small subsection of people.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, in the 80s and 90s, it was a huge movement to, you know, accept gay and lesbian relationships. And, but now that, you know, now you can just sit all at dinner table and it's not a, not a topic of conversation. So once you do, once you have raised all this awareness about polyamory and non-monogamy, then we can all just sit and chat and be comfortable with whatever relationship style I would choose to be in. Oh, I'm ready for the dinner table. I'm (laughs) ready for the dinner table. No, I mean,
3: that, that, that is really motivating to myself personally, because, yeah, when you think about the 80s, 90s, even before that, when queer people were seen as a threat, you know, the idea that like my child elementary school teacher is gay. Oh, that means he's a pedophile. That means he's going to try to seduce my children in some way, you know, like this horrible stuff. And sometimes polyamorous people and non-monogamous people suffer from some similar stigmas. You know, there is a little bit of this stigma bleed over (laughs) into areas of life that are not relevant. And what I mean by this is like there was a study done back in 2016 that was specifically looking at stigma that people in consensually non-monogamous relationships face. And, you know, so people who tended to look negatively at consensual non-monogamy were also more likely to think a consensually non-monogamous person probably doesn't take a multivitamin They probably don't do their taxes on time. They probably don't walk their dogs regularly. Like they found that there was this kind of assumption that like people who are consensually non-monogamous are probably maybe a little bit amoral, maybe not responsible, maybe a little bit messy. Maybe they just don't Organize their lives very well, and they're probably reprehensible. And that probably extends to other areas of their life. And so it's funny to talk about the whole, you know, walking the dog or taking the multivitamin thing, but it's like (laughs) if your tax professional is out about being consensually non monogamous and you have this bias that assumes that a non monogamous person is disorganized enough to not get their taxes in on time, it's like that's going to affect things, right? And currently, there aren't any. Uh, protections in place for relationship format or relationship status. That's something that um, other activists and lawyers and amazing people are doing work to change that. But it's it's still something that has very real world consequences. You know, like there's unfortunately there exists precedents of people losing custody of their children or people losing their job or people being denied access to housing because they were out or outed as being consensually non-monogamous in some way.
0: It is true that your book is for everyone. It's essential tools for all modern relationships. Emphasis also on providing nice tools that people can use, and one of those is the triforce, uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> like the, the triforce of communication. <laughs> yes, yeah. good announcer voice. <laughs> so, tell us about that.
2: Yeah, uh, the Triforce of communication came about because we're all big Zelda nerds. So, for those of you out there who know what the Triforce is, it, yes, it is you know that thing. <laughs> That's what we named it after. Um, but it's essentially a really easy way to meta communicate with a partner. So, for instance, the I'll just talk about like it in action, essentially. If you come home from a very long day at work, and you're feeling kind of not great, you had maybe a bad day, and you launch into a story about the day with your partner, and your partner comes back at you immediately with, well, you should have done this thing differently, or well, why don't you do that next time? That's so often kind of the case when we come home and there's more of like a heteronormative structure in place where maybe the woman's telling the guy about the day and the guy's like well you I'm going to give you a bunch of unsolicited advice. And that can sometimes lead to a lot of conflict. So we created this thing called the Triforce of Communication, where you literally tell your partner, this is what I want out of the conversation, as opposed to you know just having them maybe think, this is the best thing for you, so I'm going to give you that. So you can tell them right now, what I want is just to relay to you about my day. I'm coming home. I'm not feeling great. Maybe you see that and you're wondering what's going on. I want to let you know that it's about my day and not about you. So you don't need to worry about that. I'm just going to do Triforce number one. And it's just telling you about what happened. And then Triforce number two is I would really love some support, some care, some hugs, some poor baby, some, yeah, that sounds like that really sucked. I'm really sorry that you had to go through that. That's Triforce number two. And then Triforce number three is going into, let's collaborate. Let's talk about this. Maybe I'd love to hear how you would you know, deal with this situation and maybe what I could do differently next time. So only then in a Triforce number three situation, are you going to actually give this advice when it is warranted, when it is something that you want out of the conversation not just throwing it your way because, oh, well, that's what we do. I'm just going to give you advice. So again, just a really easy way to communicate openly and honestly and understand what it is that you need from your partner and what it is that they're going to give you.
1: One of the things that I think is really powerful about the Triforce is that as you start to pay attention to it, you see that pretty much all communication falls into one of those three categories of either I just want to convey information or I want some kind of support or celebration or sympathy, or it's that I want problem solving and advice. And if you use it for a little bit, you'll start to recognize it much more quickly, which one someone's going for. But also, if you're not sure, you know that it's a question worth asking. Because I think for a lot of us, we, it just doesn't even occur to us. We hear something and we just respond with whichever type of response we think we would want in that situation. But that could really vary from moment to moment. So what I like about the Triforce is, unlike microscripts, where it's best if you both agree on something together, with the Triforce, I might know it and you don't. You're talking to me about something, and I can ask you without saying the word Triforce. (laughs) Oh, gosh, wow. What what are you you looking for right now? Do you just want support or do you want to talk about problem solving or advice? And then you can say, oh, huh. I don't know. I guess I just want support. It kind of gets someone to think, oh, yeah. Yeah. What do I want? Oh, this is the thing. And then you can have a much more productive conversation after that. I find this is even helpful like in the workplace or many other situations besides just romantic relationships.
3: It's been super helpful as a framework for me to also understand that like, if I'm talking to a partner about something, like if I am talking about my day or a problem that I'm facing and I'm noticing myself getting annoyed with their response, I can pause (laughs) and be like, you know what, I didn't clarify what I was looking for when I reached out to my partner. I should clarify that right now you know, so whether I can be like, okay, hold on, actually hold the brakes. Cause I feel like what's going on is I'm getting too much T3. I'm getting too much problem solving from you. And I actually kind of just want some sympathy and, or, or vice versa. Actually, to be totally honest, I tend to get more <laughs> annoyed with the opposite that like if a partner is just offering like empathy and listening and I'm like, no, 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 I need your brain. I need, I need to bounce ideas off of you. I need your brainstorming. Right. And so for me, it's a good cue to be like, okay, actually I need to pause and meta communicate a little bit better here about what it is that I'm going for.
0: So basically, if you're sharing either before you share or somebody else is sharing, you might pause and you might ask them, okay, which of the triforces are we at right now? Are we Uh at sharing? Are we at celebrating? Are we at decision making? That sort of thing.
3: Yeah, there was a really beautiful article in the New York Times a few months ago where the context was they were talking about social emotional learning and teachers finding ways to welcome students back into the classroom after the pandemic lockdowns. And they just gave this brief little mention that this teacher said that they were starting to use this rubric with kids of asking them, okay, do you want to be heard? Do you want to be helped? Or do you want to be hugged? And that's literally the Triforce, right? You know, it is that like, do you want, yeah, do you want my ears? Or do you want me to hug you? Or do you want my help directly? Right. And
0: Help, hurt, or hug. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, we only have time to talk about a few more tools and let's talk about radar. <laughs> What's that mean?
3: <laughs> oh, wow. Yes. Okay. Radar. So, radar is hands down probably one of our most popular tools. It's, you know, one of our most downloaded episodes of the podcast. And Radar has a long history in that way back in 2016, this article came out on Medium. It was written by a woman who was a software developer, and she was in a relationship with a man who was also a software developer. And she was sharing about how she and her partner decided to apply the Agile Scrum framework to their relationships. Ah,
0: yes. Now, the Agile Scrum yes.
3: Framework. <laughs> well, I have to say, Are anyone, you familiar? <laughs> anyone out there who is, who is in software or in tech hears that and is probably groaning and rolling their eyes right now because the Agile Scrum Framework is basically I mean, this is an oversimplification, but it's basically almost like a project management framework that's used quite frequently within the software and within the development world. And it's basically a way of managing a project that's not just, okay, we build the thing and then it's done, but that may have many different teams working on it at once. And also it may not be just That the project is done when it's done. We may need to do updates. We may need to do more development. We may need to do tech support for it. So, this idea that it was a framework for being able to support an ongoing project, much like a relationship. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, it, it was interesting, you know, like reading this article. But of course, the first thought we had was, you know, is there a way, like, does this still work if you're doing it with multiple partners, for instance? Does this still work if you're, you know, if you're someone who's not necessarily interested in getting married, right? That was kind of the conclusion of, of her article was like, we use this and then that's how we figured out we want to get married, you know, like basically, like, how is this going to work for like, is there a way to make this framework more flexible for the very wide variety of relationship diversity? That is out there. And so, what we did was, we spent an entire year just testing it in our own relationships, you know, so kind of testing and tweaking, doing this particular check in process. And then we sort of reformatted it, changed it, um, and eventually came up with what is now known today as Radar. And so, it's essentially our own custom made like relationship check in formula. So what radar stands Yeah, what radar yes. stands for is review, agree the agenda, discuss action points and reconnect. And so the idea is that you and your partner or you with multiple partners at a regular basis, we recommend once a month, you sit down to have what is sort of like a check-in conversation or a state of the union where you're going to go through these five steps. You know, so you review, like you review essentially what's happened since your last check-in. You know, everything from, you know, you kind of whip out your Google calendars and talk about, yeah, we went on vacation and then you started that new job. And then I went on a first date with a new person or, and then we decided to do this thing with our house or whatever it is, right? You agree the agenda. So you agree together, like, what are the things that we're going to talk about during this particular check-in meeting? Now, as part of our development and tweaking this, like we created a set list of agenda items that we recommend that people address every single time, everything from sex, money, physical and mental health, our family, any future plans. And we recommend that people check in on each of these things every single time because of the fact that we can fall into a pattern of only talking about certain topics when something's going wrong and when there's a problem. And then when things are going okay, we don't really talk about it. It's really common for money and sex to fall into that particular pattern. And so like we recommend checking in on these topics frequently to keep the dialogue open, to keep that channel of communication open. And this is also how you can catch problems early. You can catch... Misunderstandings and miscommunications early on. Or you can have more opportunities, like for instance, with sex, where it's like, yeah, sex has been feeling great. I really liked this specific thing that you did last time. Hey, have you thought about using this particular toy? Right? Like it creates this safe space to talk about these things that's not. Necessarily happening in the heat of the moment where there can be like a lot of pressure and a lot of emotions, you know, when you're in the middle of like having sex with your partner. So you agree the agenda, you spend your time discussing everything on the agenda. And then action points is if there's anything that you do want to change. Like let's say we sat down and we talked about mental health, right? And realized, you know, maybe I shared the fact that I've been dealing with some depression and some anxiety lately and I'm not really sure what to do about that. And maybe we agree, like, okay. I'm going to set an action point for myself that I'm going to reach out to my therapist and talk about X, Y, and Z in particular and see if she has any recommendations, right? So the action points are the place for both partners to be able to create some goals, create some landmarks that we can then check in on again at the next check-in or at the next radar, right? We can look back and say, hey, we put down this action point that we were going to try to go on one date night a week did that happen? Like, did it not happen? What got in the way? What do we like about doing that? Do we not like doing that? Do we need to tweak this or adjust this? Basically, the idea of action points being a part of the step is to prevent that thing that happens in relationships so of us saying, okay, we really need to resolve this issue. So yeah, let's, let's try to go on one date night a week. Great. And then there's no plan for, uh, okay, well, when are we going to check in on that? Like, okay, if that doesn't happen, when are we going to talk about this? And like, Is some person just going to sit and stew in resentment for six months, you know, because their partner has completely forgotten that they said that they would try to do this? You know, so the whole action points thing is sort of to have a sense of like recurrent accountability and to make sure that you're able to track progress and change together on a regular basis. And then at the very end is the reconnect step, which is, you know, you get through often it's like at least a couple hours of having this check in discussion and then you get to reward yourselves at the end, right? By either exchanging some kind of, you know, pleasurable touch or cuddles or maybe you have sex or, you know, with my partners I tend to exchange specifically compliments and appreciation at the very end or maybe we're going to go reward ourselves by going out to that new restaurant that we thought looked really interesting. And the whole point of the reconnect step, not only does it, you know, leave you with maybe a better taste in your mouth at the end of the check-in, but it's to help to reforge new Pathways. We were talking about intellectual flexibility earlier, but it's like literally re you know, forging new mental pathways around the check-in talk because we're so socialized to think ooh relationship check-in it's going to be bad you know or mm-hmm, ooh we need mm-hmm. to talk okay that means oh, there's no. a problem we yes yeah. no. exactly no. <laughs> exactly and so the whole point is is to literally let your heart and your body have that experience of okay we got through something that was maybe a little scary maybe a little awkward and then now it can feel good we got to the other side of it and it can feel good and can feel safe again, so that checking in on your relationship doesn't have to always be this chore full of dread. So that was my TED Talk on radar. (laughs) (laughs) Well well
0: done. Well, it's funny when you mentioned the reconnecting at the end because I was like, I hope this is done on like the couch with a glass of wine. That's exactly how I do it. (laughs) I think I
2: wrote about that in the book. I was like, that's how we conduct our radars for sure, my partner and
1: I. Yeah. Dedeker and I often do ours at multiple locations. So it'll be like, maybe we'll
3: traveling radar. Yeah.
1: We'll start it during dinner and then maybe we'll continue it for a walk and then we'll stop and get a drink and then go home and we'll kind of keep things moving. So we're not just sitting there, like staring at each other while we're going through this. <laughs> right. Sitting across from each other at the right. Right. desk.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, the
0: time has absolutely flown by. I feel like we've just been able to scratch the surface. And our listeners can look into this wonderful new book, Multi-Amory, that can also look into your nine-year over 400-episode podcast. Like, I know how much work it is putting these things on. So well done keeping it going. <laughs> and I do have to save some time as we close because there's one question I ask all my guests to close the show. And I have to ask three times here. <laughs> 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 so we'll go one at a time. I'm going to choose Emily first. Emily, what do you wish everyone knew about love?
2: Ooh, I wish everyone would do this first in love—that you would assume good intent of your partner first when you are in conflict with them. Instead of blaming them right in, right away or getting defensive, instead just try to you know remain as calm as possible and assume that they want the best out of the conversation for you and for them and that it's coming from a good place as opposed to right away getting upset and angry and defensive. And hopefully that can at least you know, m- make the conversation into something that's a little bit kinder and gentler and more understanding as opposed to just angry and resentful. So <laughs> that's one of the things that I've learned, I think, over the nine years of doing this show and the nine years of being in my relationship as well, is that I want to start from that place. So yeah, love is assuming good intent.
0: Beautiful. Solid advice. I'll go
1: to you, Jace. What do you wish everyone knew about love? Gosh. I, so I wanna I wanna take it to maybe a surprising place. And that is that. In order to end a relationship or break up with someone, they don't have to be a bad person and you don't have to not love them. I think that I just say that because it's something I think a lot of people don't internalize and took me a long time to understand that idea that this relationship might not be the right one, even if I do still love this person and even if I do think they're a good person that often We kind of feel like, well, we can't break up unless one of those things is true. I either don't love them or I've decided they're a bad person, which often coincides with the first one. Uh, But just to to realize that that might be the reality. And uh, I I see that as something very empowering. So that then when we are in relationships with people that we love, it's because we not only love them, but we also love the relationship.
0: So you can end on a high note. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. In order to end a relationship doesn't mean we have to vilify uh, the person that we are transitioning out of. All right, Dedekker, you have the last word. What do you wish everyone do about love?
3: Something that I've been thinking about recently is that quote by Ursula K. Le Guin. And it's, I think it's a little overplayed. So I feel a little bit basic even just saying it. But, but it's that quote about how love has to be made and remade every day, like bread. Like it has to be made new every single day. And are you familiar with this?
2: Does bread have to be made new Yeah, I I just just put my head in a funny direction because I was like, bread? I
3: I think if we're thinking a hundred years ago, a (laughs) hundred years ago where I I don't have the ability to make bread full of preservatives, that (laughs) the bread goes stale pretty fast. And so we got to make, it's our daily bread. That's not what I'm here to talk about though. What I'm here to talk about (laughs) is... I think about that a lot. I think about how even in a long-term relationship, we need to make daily effort to turn towards the other person and daily effort to choose to be vulnerable rather than not that again, like pushing ourselves on this day-to-day basis to always choose to lean in a little bit closer or turn towards a little bit more, open ourselves up a little bit more. Nine times out of ten, it's it's worth it. And I think it's the stuff that relationships are are made of. It's all made wonderful.
2: of bread. <laughs> <laughs> it's all we're made of. It's all made
3: of preservative-free, organic, <laughs> hand-milled, homemade bread, baby.
0: I was thinking about the bread when you said that, but I was also thinking how wonderful all your advice goes together. We have, towards the beginning of the relationship, assume good intent during the relationship. Make and Fred. remake your love, <laughs> and then towards the end, you can still love each other and wish them well and not say that they're a bad person.
2: Wow, well, there you go,
0: <laughs> so thank you so much, Emily Jace, and Dedeker for coming onto the show for our listeners. They'll want to learn more about any of you. How can they find you?
2: Yeah, so we are on instagram at multi underscore podcast on x and facebook at multi-amory i'll get used to saying that one of these days on threads at multi-amory underscore podcast and you can find us at www.multiamory.com and multiamory.com slash book is where you can find many places to buy our book please rate it and review as well if you really like it and then yeah wherever fine podcasts are listened to you can find us at multi-amory podcast. Beautiful. So thank you so
0: much for the first time I've had three guests on the show. So this has been a very multi-amorous show. <laughs> Congratulations so on the milestone. Walk in the there walk you go. As we talk about it. So thank you so much. Wow. What a wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful that Jace, Dedeker, and Emily took time out of their busy days to come onto the show. And I thank you listeners so much for listening to the show. We hope you remember many of the valuable lessons that our guest shared with us this week, including the same principles underlie all relationships, no matter what style they are. And if a relationship is struggling due to an incompatibility, a different format is not going to help. There's no need to fear the non-monogamous possibility. And you can Harness the power of idiosyncratic language by using microscripts as an antidote for nothing fights. And if that sentence didn't make sense, you might have to re-listen to the episode. We also hope you remember the triforce of communication. Know when you are talking, whether or not you want to share and be, whether or not you want sympathy and celebration, or perhaps advice and decision-making. And you can also use the tool of RADAR to review Agree the agenda, discuss, action points, and reconnect with your relationships. And don't forget the truths about love. We can assume good intent from the other. Love has to be remade every day. In a long-term relationship, make a daily effort to turn toward each other. And if your relationship does end, it doesn't mean the other person is a bad person. It simply means that your relationship didn't work out and you can wish the best for that person. Thanks again for listening. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com.
1: Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on
2: Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.